0: All right, back on the Young Turks, Uh, fun uh, change here. In the third hour, I'm gonna start reading your comments and tweets, Uh, so like we do in the rest of the show. So uh, let me do two right here. Uh, Progressive Palestinian writes in, I live my life like it's your birthday every day, Chank. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, hilarious. Uh, TYT.com slash birthday if you wanna give the gift of membership, including to yourself. Uh, And Carrie Curley writes in on Twitter, uh, yeah, cuz men have never been given a fair shot at, oh, wait. (laughs) That's right. During the break, we're talking about it. Women are 51% of the country and 0% of the president so far. So uh, I think it might make sense to ask that question. Okay, now, um, by the way, as you all know, we don't believe that that's the sole reason why you should pick a president, okay. Um, Now joining me, uh, Ramesh Shirani Vasan. Uh, Ramesh, I have uh, trouble with your name every time, uh, even though we've done it 18 different times together. Uh, Okay. And even though my name is Janky, all right, anyways, uh, uh, Ramesh is a professor at UCLA. uh, And I love, this is another thing I love every time you come on, seeing all of your degrees. uh, Cuz it's so overwhelmingly (laughs) impressive that I'm amused by it. Uh, He's a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering at Stanford, a master's degree at MIT, and a doctorate in design studies at Harvard. You left out Yale. I don't. You know, we still got time, though. Okay. So, anyway, you spoke at a rally that Bernie Sanders was also at yesterday at UCLA. Real quick, I want to get to a lot of the super interesting issues around breaking up big tech that Elizabeth Warren's talked about, etc. But I know the folks that attended that rally here from the Young Turks thought you had the best speech. What did you speak about?
1: I learned my speeches from being on the Young Turks with you. <laughs> uh, it was it was so awesome, Jenk, um, and it's great to be back with you and the viewers. Um, the rally was uh, organized uh, on behalf of our UC workers, so across the University of California, and um, they asked a number, of course, of folks in the union as well as um, students and faculty like myself to speak and. You know, we were all blown away and honored. I think it gave us a lot of energy to know that Bernie uh, was going to come and join us yesterday. And I think what's really powerful about Bernie coming, and it was the first words he actually said yesterday, is, I'm not here as a presidential candidate. I'm here to stand with all of you. And I think that gave people a lot of uh, just a feeling uh, that this politician is not here uh, just to feed us, you know, platitudes and do lip service to our causes and maybe put a tweet up (laughs) to, you know, describing some sort of solidarity to what we were all doing, Uh, but is actually here putting his body in the space and, um, and sort of speaking to people in a very direct way and speaking to um, his decades long history, um, supporting uh, workers causes and the causes of unions. And one thing you'll probably notice right now, or all of us are noticing is how much attention is being given uh, by. Um, many of the Democratic uh, hopefuls uh, to unions all over again. And that's pretty interesting and timely. Um, But there's really one figure more than any other uh, of the candidates in my mind who's stood with unions and stood with workers' rights um, over the past literally four-plus decades. So walk the walk, you know?
0: Yeah, So, but let's talk about another candidate as well. Last time uh, we had you on, we were talking about your book, Whose Global Village, Rethinking How Technology Impacts Our World. And you said something there that I've actually, uh, you you don't know this, but I've quoted off air dozens of times since then about how the people writing the algorithms in a very specific area, usually a specific uh, ethnicity and race, uh, affect the culture of the whole world through those algorithms. Yes. So now, uh, Elizabeth Warren is talking about maybe break, breaking up big tech. Uh, super curious as to what your thoughts on that are.
1: Well, I think first of all, she's trying to, on a political level, uh, differentiate herself from other candidates so she can actually um, put out messages that uh, get our attention and, um, and are meaningful for many of us. Um, I think her logic uh, behind the proposal is pretty interesting. Um, she's very um, on point with what is the problem um, in terms of the tech monopolies or at least monopolies in the making. Um, Her main argument, just to explain to folks, is that um, you can't be the place where all these sorts of exchanges occur and monetize and surveil and actually use that data to put yourself as a leg up on top of being the platform where these exchanges occur. So think Amazon, for example, you know, everybody in, you know, everything and everybody is engaging with Amazon all the time and we we buy and sell things and so on, right? But what Amazon is also doing, which is far less known, is gathering data, the most granular, um, incredibly uh, incriminating and, and deeply invasive forms of data around those exchanges. So by gathering that data, it's actually able to be Uh, the lead dog with any industry it chooses, and knock out any of the uh, retailers that are advertising their products on its site. Because Amazon is not simply a retail place, an e-commerce place, it's also the place where a lot of web-based data and web services live. So that's her point, you can't be both. You can't be the platform and the marketplace and monetize that, yet also gather that data so you're leg up on everybody else. Similarly, think about new industries, right? So like Uber, for example, um, is is valued massively despite not necessarily being a cash revenue positive business, and a large reason why is because the investors realize that the gathering of that data allows Uber to be a leg up on new industries and potentially monopolize those industries like automated cars, which we talked about a little bit last time, Jenk.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, but at this point, if you were in charge, would you break up the big tech companies?
1: Yes, I would, but I would also have that be part of a much larger strategy, which you know I've been writing about for my new book, uh, Beyond the Valley, which you know, we'll talk about, I hope, in a few months, Cenk, um, which is we need a data bill of rights. And so what does that mean? Well, anything you do pretty much, Cenk, um, there's a digital footprint, there's data being gathered about you. And so what I'm talking about is anytime you use your credit card, um, anytime, of course, you use your GPS, anytime maybe you post something online, Um, Maybe you go to Rite Aid and get one of those discount cards at Rite Aid. All of that data goes somewhere and all of that data can be bought and sold. So much larger issue than simply the tech companies themselves is the fact that every industry imaginable is potentially growing and can abuse and exploit consumers and citizens based on their massive power over personal data. I mean, you know, we've extracted land, we've extracted labor. But imagine extracting every single behavioral part of your life through these 24-7 listening devices that we have. So I do uh, very much respect what Senator Warren is saying, but I think large, more, larger, more largely on top of it, we need to know what data is being collected about us. We need to know how that data is being used because that data can be used to potentially criminalize us, especially those people of color and marginalized communities. And we see that with uh, systems like predictive policing and criminal justice systems. I talked about that a little bit with John yesterday at the rally. Um, So this is a much larger issue because what can happen is I can actually get a a deep insight into your life outside of Facebook as well, right? So it's not simply about Facebook, it's what Facebook represents or these other big tech companies represent. So in that sense, I really applaud what Senator Warren and her team are doing. I've talked to them a little bit about it, Um, but I think it's just- you know, scratching at the surface of a much larger issue, which is citizens um, of a democracy and of consumers. Um, As consumers, we need to know um, what this game is that's happening around us. Imagine every single thing we do with our phones has a middleman that's peering in the middle, that's using and exploiting that transaction or that form of communication for their own personal private benefit. And that's why we're talking about the wealthiest and most powerful companies in the history of the world when we're talking about the big tech companies
0: yeah I, I know others have talked about this plenty, but it, it really is amazing because the other day I, I, I bought life cereal at the store and I got an ad for life cereal on my phone today yeah I, I don't that's amazing how they do that amazing so but I, I, I want to move on to another topic though before we run out of time. Uh, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on how the social media cycle is affecting the 2020 elections. What's yeah. your take on that?
1: So, you know, we have an Instagram celebrity in the making in Beto uh, (laughs) O'Rourke running for president. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm being a little glib there, but it really does speak to how every every political cycle, every election is partly a story about technology and specifically specifically the ways in which social media operate and function. Uh, We see the Bernie Sanders strategy, right, which is a powerful powerful, uh, a powerhouse of bringing people together, bringing the crowd together, like these old school ideas we had about the internet that it would bring us all together, right? $27, um, you know, small uh, independent donors, uh, all of us, you know, kind of coming together. That's one strategy that we see with social media and the internet. But another strategy, which without question is gonna be part of what's gonna happen here is um, the gathering of data And to be used in such a way so that people are fed content on their phones and online that are based on the ideas on ideas of behavioral manipulation. And that's exactly what the Russian government did. That's exactly uh, what Cambridge Analytica did. And that's exactly why we need to pay very close attention to how manipulation can occur in a psychological sense, not simply demographic in a psychological sense, right? Like, Cenk, I know you buy life Life cereal, but what if I know that you're neurotic when you interact with your kids at eight o'clock in the morning? And then I feed you content based on what I think your psychology is. So that's another part of this, right? Data, the internet can be used to bring us together, but it can be also used to manipulate us. And we can also see how millennial appealing candidates, and I'm I'm a little concerned about Beto's impact potentially on the Bernie Uh, kind of voting block with youth, um, can also bring people together. You look at the ways in which, you know, for example, Beto content is being shot, uh, the kind of casual nature of it, it kind of looks like a Snapchat feed uh, or an Instagram live feed at times, right? And so these are all strategies. These are strategies of storytelling. They're strategies of data gathering and surveillance. And they're also strategies of bringing working class, middle class you know, ordinary people together in a very democratic fashion. And the internet has all three faces to it. Uh, the question is, for me more largely, what kind of internet, what kind of digital world are we gonna fight for? Are we gonna fight for one of justice and equity and balance, or are we gonna fight for one of abuse and manipulation and surveillance?
0: All right, Ramesh, great to talk to you as always. Looking forward to your new book, and everybody check out Who's Global Village. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. All right, Uh, we appreciate it, brother. We'll see you soon. Great to see you, Cenk. Thank you. All right, we got another great guest coming up for you guys when we return. And uh, she actually lived on both sides of the border. Uh, She's at Harvard, so apparently it's academia day today. Uh, But the story of uh, the the real human suffering that happens, uh, and I actually wanna get into a really nuanced discussion of. What we should do given what's happening at the border. So it's going to take twists and turns. Come right back. We'll talk about it. We're back on the Young Turks. You know, it's funny. During the break, they were running those ads for more of our programming. And one of the ads was a fake audition we were doing. Oh, no. We've been <laughs> caught. <laughs> Hashtag mastermind. Um, <laughs> so, another one was for behind the scenes, which you, which is real. You can get it uh, if you're a member, uh, tyt.com join, is speaking of which Phil writes in, and this is touching. In honor of my late wife, I am now an official TYT member. TYT is my place to not only get up-to-date news, but also lets me feel like I'm back sitting on my couch with my wife watching your amazing show. Thank you for everything. Thank you, Phil. Um, it's very, very uh, nice of you to say. And you know- uh, last night on Old School, I was talking about um, afterlife, uh, and so it reminded me of that. And uh, anyway, the the fact that we can help you do that is, it's it's wonderful. It's worth uh, all, all that we do for, for stories like that. Thank you. All right, uh, let's go to our next guest. Uh, now joining me is Aiva Yusonite. Uh, <laughs> I'm so bad with names. All right, Aiva, how, how you doing?
2: Very good. Thank you for okay.
0: having me. All right. Now, uh, Aiva is a, a professor at Harvard, uh, she wrote a book called Threshold Emergency Responders on the US-Mexico border, uh, which you should all check out. So Aiva, uh, you were on both sides of the border, Mexican and uh, US, and uh, you were largely with first responders. So first, uh, I wanna get into the nuances of the issue in a second, but first tell us what you did and what you saw.
2: So when I arrived at the border, uh, I already came there as a paramedic and volunteer firefighter. And while I was there in southern Arizona, I volunteered at a local fire department, primarily as emergency medical responder, and also on the Mexican side at the Migrant Aid Center, where we were providing um, medical attention to people who who had just been deported from the United States or people who were still Trying to get to the United States, and they had all kinds of medical uh, issues, from illnesses to injuries from traveling on the trains or being wounded by by trying to scale the border fence. Um, so yes, I sometimes I was crossing back and forth every day.
0: Yeah, and uh, so you treat a lot of folks who got injured uh, through their trek to to come to America, um, and. You know, I don't think a lot of us have a good sense of how arduous that trek is. So what were the most common injuries uh, and and what were the most common problems that they faced as they finally made it to the border?
2: So those people who were trying to come through more urban areas, such as these um, binational border towns, they had a lot of fractures, uh, leg fractures, um, spinal fractures, head injuries, because the fence right now is over 20 feet tall. So any fall from that type of fence usually uh, results in multi-system trauma. But a lot of people also go around the urban areas. They travel with guides known as the coyotes through the desert. And then the journey takes so long, sometimes it's usually at least several days Uh, sometimes longer, and people get lost. They get abandoned by their guides. They scatter into the desert when the Border Patrol chases them and get lost. And those people primarily suffer from dehydration, um, different environmental emergencies. In winter, it can be hypothermia because it gets really cold in the desert. In the summer, it's over 100 10 115 degrees Fahrenheit, it's very hot. There is no water, they drink contaminated water so they can get intestinal infections. Um, definitely, even even a, a, a splinter or a, a twisted ankle in the desert when you are several days from the nearest town, um, can 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 result in in death. And there has been Uh, According to the Border Patrol statistics, over 7,000 people who have died over the last, um, I think, 20 or so years.
0: 7,000 people who died? Okay. Yes, and that's that's an
2: underestimate.
0: Yeah. So you write about tactical infrastructure uh, where they leave gaps in the structures in, in the rougher terrains. Can you explain that a little bit?
2: So tactical infrastructure is the concept that the Border Patrol uses for all the materials and technologies that they deploy in order to regulate movement, make, make it possible somewhere and impossible elsewhere. The border fence is the major component of the tactical infrastructure and the design of the fence has changed. So in the 1990s and early 2000s, we had these this fence that was only 8 to 12 feet tall, but it was made from the landing mats that were used in the Vietnam War. It had very sharp edges, and people sometimes got their fingers amputated when they crossed. Whereas now the border fence, or as they call the wall, is much, much taller. Uh, and that's why we see system system uh, trauma. But tactical infrastructure also involve, entails all these surveillance towers, um, sensors that uh ground sensors night vision scopes every, all, all the technology deployed on the border which um which is tactical in in both senses of the term as tactical in order to ensure national security as the government defines it but also we usually encounter the concept tactical in the context of war and what we're seeing in the borderlands is really war war on drugs war on crime war on terror and now war on immigration and the tactical infrastructure is deployed there to mitigate all of these um, threats to yeah. to the country
0: yeah w- w- when uh, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like nails. So uh, now we uh, declare war on everything, including people. So, um, but now let's get into the harder questions. Uh, because I, I hear you on that. If you've got a fence or a wall in one area where it's built easier to build, and hence it would have been easier to cross, and that's why they put the fence there. Uh, and then, and they, it's harder to build uh, in rougher terrain, and plus it's harder to cross, uh, on the one hand, I get the logic of that. Uh, on the on the other hand, it, it causes more injuries and more deaths to people. But I'm curious what you think. Should we not have any fence or wall at all? And then in that scenario where it is relatively easy to cross in those areas, are, are we okay with that? What's your take on that?
2: Well, the fortification of the border is really the wrong answer to immigration Um uh, questions that definitely need addressing through reform. A lot of people who are coming now, and it has changed since the time when I was there, are seeking asylum. They present themselves to the border patrol. They come to the ports of entry. They wait in long lines to to ask for asylum. So the border fence does nothing to, to deter them. I think uh, it's okay for countries to have jurisdictional divides like we have Between the United States and Canada, where we have different laws, where there are procedures for coming into the other country to work or to visit uh, family members. But this material infrastructure that only intended to do harm, it doesn't really work for for anything. It doesn't prevent drug smugglers. It doesn't prevent um, uh, migrants from coming across. So it's really counter. Counterproductive. The former Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano once said that you show me a 50 foot tall uh, wall, and I'll show you a 51 foot tall ladder. So it's really it it doesn't do anything.
0: But okay, so let's say that there is no actual physical uh, wall, fence, infrastructure there. Would you still have a border patrol and prevent people from coming in, or no?
2: You would have customs and border inspectors at the ports of entry who can check your immigration status. The Border Patrol is this agency that's looking for people who are crossing through unauthorized passages. Yep. but most of the day, if you talk to the agents in a lot of areas, all they do is um, is look for an authorized border crosses. and that's not what the f- the force was even created for. It was more to prevent crime and prevent smugglers. Um, so, so I don't think we would need border patrol if uh, if we had. Sensible immigration policies and temporary worker permits and a well-staffed asylum system.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure I agree with that, but I think it's an interesting conversation. And and I, I do know that this current system we have is inhumane. Uh, and I and I think the answers are a little bit uh, complicated, but uh, a conversation worth having. So I want, but I want to learn more. So uh, in your experience at the border. Um, Are there a lot of drug smugglers coming in uh, through uh, the parts of the border that are not guarded? Or I know that uh, most of the drugs are brought in through ports of entry. uh, But are there still uh, some or a lot of drug dealers that do come in through the border?
2: So uh, you're right. Most of the loads and especially of the expensive drugs, so cocaine, meth, uh, heroin, uh, fentanyl, they come through the ports of entry hidden in, in, in compartments of vehicles and with vegetables and fruit. What we see in less uh, policed border areas where uh, further away from towns and where the fence is not as tall is people carrying uh, bales of marijuana because it's very bulky and it's much harder and to disguise it, conceal it in, in vehicles that cross the ports of entry. But as we know, in terms of marijuana, as states continue to legalize it in, in, in different states in the U.S., it will, this, this, the profitability of this business will, uh, will, will become... Well, they, it will become less profitable, and we are already seeing a little bit of that. But as with all uh, illegal um, illegal activities, it's very hard to say to to know what what statistics are telling us is reflective of reality, because the only numbers we see is how much is being, uh, and we don't know how much is getting through. Um,
0: yeah. I got you. So uh, all very interesting. And, uh, and so Professor Yusonite is an uh, uh, anthropology professor at Harvard. And her book is Threshold, Emergency Responders on the US-Mexico Border. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Now, uh, when we come back, uh, we have the last half hour for members. And we're gonna talk about two things. Uh, one, uh, what am I gonna do on my birthday? Am I actually gonna relax? We're gonna have a jank Day. What's a jank Day? For some of you have heard about that and some of you have not. Uh, for some of you that might sound a little scary. Anyway, <laughs> we'll explain. And then apparently we're going to dunk on CNN. So fun for everybody. Uh, if you'd like to sign up today or get someone else the gift of membership, tyt.com slash birthday. All right, we'll be right back.